Now, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who do get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. We're going to kind of take an overview of this whole section here. I did a little bit of this in the last two sermons, but the last sermon I wasn't particularly pleased with what I communicated. I want to be able to communicate this in a more simple fashion and maybe more straightforward. And I want you to, to get the gist of what's going on in the entirety of the passage. So let's begin. First of all, verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you. Now he's saying with regard to detailed Dates regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't have any need to write you. Now we're going to look at three reasons why. Two of them are outside of this text. And one of them is found in the text. But the reason why I'm giving you all three is because they kind of go together. And give you a good understanding. First of all. Why does he have no need to write us? Because I want you to understand. Especially the young believers here. That. Detailed information on the dates of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are not necessary for you to grow in godliness. Do you hear me? There are a lot of people who understand very little about the second coming and yet are possibly the most godly people who walk on this planet. And what do you need? I mean, what do you really need to be godly? To be like Christ. What do you need? The world will tell you all kinds of things. Churches will tell you all kinds of things. But let me just share with you what you need. Number one, you need a deeper, more intimate, and enduring knowledge of God. You need a greater knowledge of what God has done for you in Christ. You need a greater knowledge of what God will do for you in Christ. You need a greater knowledge... Of who you are. Not outside of Christ only. But you need to know who you are in Christ. And lastly, you need a greater knowledge of God's will. Because part of this Christian life is not just obedience. It's not just faith and it's not just blessing. It's obedience. And for you to walk in a way that's pleasing, you need to know His will. His person. His works. And that will not only guide you in the right direction, that will strengthen you as you need to be strengthened. But the things I've just mentioned require discipline. 
You don't just get them by being zapped at a service. You get them by an enduring faithfulness of seeking God in his word and prayer. Of seeking God in fellowship with other believers. Are you hearing me? This is what you need. Now there's another thing about a preoccupation with dates and details regarding the second coming. It can distract you and me from the task at hand. Do you remember Acts chapter 1? I want you, I hope you have your Bible, and I'm purposely wanting you to turn to Acts, okay? Once you get familiar with running through this Bible. Go to Acts chapter 1. And look at verse 6. It says, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs. Do you see that? We have that in our text. It's not for you to know. These are the apostles. Yet it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Now. As a young person, should you study the second coming? As an old person, absolutely. But should you get caught up in the details of it? No, what I want you caught up in is living according to the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Learning to walk in such a way in this dark world that you do not offend the spirit of God. And that you're constantly seeking for greater and greater measures of his power. Not to do some extraordinary miracle, but to walk in power and minister in power and be a witness. Whether it's at your job, at your school, on campus. That is the great need of the day. The great need of the day. One of the greatest preachers who ever lived, Charles Spurgeon. One of the most phenomenal things about him is when it comes to the second coming, he kind of throws his hands up in the air and says, I believe it's going to happen. And I'm trusting in that and I have a few ideas, but I will concentrate on the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and being indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit that I might walk a holy life. You see that? That should be your concern. You know, I was teaching on marriage a while back, well over in Russia, and everyone expected me to just spend the whole time talking about marriage, give them some principles and by those principles, they were going to fix everything. That's not what I did. I taught them about the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and the necessity of renewing our mind in the Word of God. Those are the things that we need so that we might be transformed and so that we might be witnesses. Now, there's also something else. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians and make your way to the right, just a few pages, you'll find yourself in 1 Timothy. And look what we have in chapter 1. He says this in verse three, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I am not saying that we shouldn't study the second coming. If it's in the Bible, we need to study it. And we need to preach it. 
But we need to be very careful that we don't start getting caught up into all sorts of minute details that actually, when we do that, our instruction with regard to the word of with regard to the second coming, it ceases to be the word of God and it begins to be myths. And endless little contrivances. I've read so many books with drawings and paintings and descriptions and date lines and numerology and all sorts of things. It's rubbish. It's not what we need. What do we need when we talk about the second coming? We need to know the certainty of it, the power of it, the glory of it and certain details. Yes, but don't get caught up in those kind of things. And they distract you from what is most important. Okay, now. Let's let's go on. He says. Oh, there's there's one other thing that I want to talk to you about why he's not writing them. And that is look in verse two for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. He's not writing to them about the details of the second coming. Why? Because they're not revealed. They're not revealed to men. As a matter of fact, details and times and epochs and dates go against everything we know about the manner in which Jesus is going to come. He's going to come as a thief in the night. Let me ask you a question. Does the thief ring you up on the phone or send you an email or text you saying it's such and such date and such and such hour I'm going to come? He doesn't. He comes when he has determined to come, when he sees fit to come, and he comes at a time At least in his own mind, he's hoping when he's least expected. Do you see that? So glory in the second coming. Study the second coming. But be careful that you don't get off into some strange detail that really doesn't have a biblical foundation. Now, let's go on. Verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Now, I want you to look at the words peace and safety. So many I've heard so many people say that they believe that this is talking about a time of prosperity and peace when the nations get it all together and then Christ comes. No, I don't think that I don't think it's so much horizontal. I think the idea here is vertical. And what do I mean? I think that what this is talking about is a wholesale rejection of the biblical idea of God. That there will be something of a global rejection, a global apostasy of the biblical idea of God. Whether they deny his existence altogether or whether they just turn him into a God of worldly love who knows nothing of justice. But I believe a situation will be created in which people will have peace and security, not with regard to nation and relationships with other nations, but they'll have peace and security with regard to this. We don't fear God. <laughs> There's no God to fear. Or if he is God, we don't, we don't need to feed him uh, to, to uh, fear him. Also, they're not concerned about some, some intervention of God. And they're not thinking about the possibility of the Christian idea of God coming in the person of Christ and judging the world. They're saying all of it's ludicrous. If we go to 2 Peter chapter 3, we can see something quite 
similar. So just run over there to Second Second Peter with me for just a second. In Second Peter, chapter three, look what we see. Verse three, know this, first of all, that in the last days now, the last days aren't simply referring to a few days before Christ comes or a few years or a few decades. The last days actually began with the life, death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord. So this is going to mark all of this time of the church. And it says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has or it was from the beginning of creation. Do you know what it is? It's so many years have passed. It can't be true. And so as each year goes on and on and on, the mockers become more brave and hopefully the Christians do not become more timid. Because it doesn't matter to us. His promises are true. And we hold to those. We must hold to those. Now let's get back to our text. It says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. I wish I pray that the Holy Spirit would so open up your mind. If, if you don't know the Lord, that he would open up your mind to see that here your entire destiny will be fixed. As I said before, it won't be determined. You're determining that right now by your continuous rejection of Christ. You're determining your destiny. But at that point, when Christ comes, it'll be fixed right now. It's not necessarily fixed. You can still repent. You can still believe. But there'll come a time when all of that is over. There'll be no one crying out to you to repent. You will be asking possibly permission to repent, but the door will not be open. Do You see that? It is a terrible time. Especially the women can probably can understand this much greater than any man. That they're walking along. They're, they may be pregnant with child. And they're walking along and everything seems fine. And all of a sudden labor pains strike them. And there's nothing they can do. They must surrender themselves to something that's happening to them. And so you'll have to, my friend. You will have to. Now, let's go on. He says, but brethren, you are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Now, I want us to look at this. First of all, he says that these unbelievers, those outside of Christ will be overtaken and it'll be coming upon them like a thief. Or let's put it this way. Have you ever been out in a field and you turn over a large rock or you turn over a, a fallen tree stump or something out in the forest? And the moment you do that, you see all these creatures underneath that rock. And the moment the light hits them, they're scurrying everywhere, trying to get away from the light. That's literally what we're talking about here with the unbeliever. When Christ comes back, it's like the flipping of a stone. But they won't be able to escape because for the first time, there'll be light everywhere. No place to hide, whether it's the deepest part of the sea, the highest mountain, you'll be called forth. 
And you'll have to stand in what the believer calls a beautiful light. But to you, it will be terror. Terror. Now, why is it that the unbeliever is caught this way? Well, he tells us in verse 4 and 5. So let's read. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now, he says he's speaking about the believer, but we can take the, the contrary or the opposite and we can define the unbeliever that in verse four, he is in darkness. And in verse five, he is of night and of darkness. So now what does this mean? Well, first of all, I want you to understand that the darkness in the unbeliever is much deeper than their deeds. Do you see that? Maybe you've heard this statement before. We are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. That our, our actions flow out of actually what we are, what a person is. And that's the case here. These aren't just people who de do deeds of darkness. These are people who are dark. As we were dark before Christ came and gave us light. Now, hold your place, but I want you to just, just go on over to Ephesians because we're going to see so many parallels between the book of Ephesians, okay? Between the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and what we're reading about in 1 Thessalonians. Look for just a moment in verse 8. And look what he says. Chapter 5, verse 8, Ephesians. For you were formerly darkness. Do you see that? He's talking about the time before you were a believer. He's not saying, like John, in 1 John, merely that you walked in darkness. He's saying, you were darkness. And because you were darkness, you walked in darkness. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring to the darkness of our natures. Our human depravity prior to conversion. And so it is a darkness of nature. That requires much more than just you turning over a new leaf or joining a church. You must be born again. You must be made into a new creature. Now, not only is there a darkened nature, but look in Ephesians 4 and look in verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How, How do they walk? In the futility of their mind. Now, why do they do that? Verse 18, being, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Why are they going to be taken without even knowing it? Because of the ignorance that's in them. And why is it there? Because of their rejection of God. You see, we could go into a philosophical lecture right now that there simply is no knowledge apart from a Christian God. And there's certainly no knowledge of him that's enough to be trusted in unless it comes from inspired revelation. And they've rejected both. So they are in darkness. Their nature is dark. Their understanding is dark. But look at one other thing about them. Why are they caught? They don't want to come out of the dark. This is one of the hardest things to understand, but it's a perfect implication of 
what the theologian is saying when he talks about the radical depravity of the human heart. They don't want to come out of the dark. And where do I get that? Hold your place in 1 Thessalonians and just go to John for just a moment. And go to chapter 3, if you would. Now, one of the bad things about John chapter 3, well, there's nothing bad about it. But there's something bad about the way it's treated. It's like verse 16 is the only verse in there. Now, verse 16, John 3, 16, whenever anybody wants me to sign a book or anything like that, underneath it's always going to be John 3, 16. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. But there's more verses in John 3 than John 3, 16. As a matter of fact, if you look in verse 19, look what it says. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is why men so supposedly intellectually reject the idea of a Christian God. It's not intellectual. It has to do with will. With will. I was talking to a man years ago about the philosopher, Spanish philosopher, Unamuno, who wrote the book, La Vida es un Sueño, Life is a Dream. And this was the argument. To search for truth, to search for truth, was the most noble thing a man, a scholarly man, an academic man, to search for truth is the most noble thing he can do. Do you see that? But this is also what Unamuno said. But the most arrogant, foolish, and stupid thing a man can say is that he found the truth. Now see, that's very convenient. Why? You get to talk about truth all the time, but you never have to submit to it. And the, and the man that was speaking with me, I simply told him this. You know, your argument's very convenient because you can seek the truth even though I know you don't want to find it and you don't want to find it because the moment you find it, you have to submit to it. And that is the thing you don't want to do. Why do people reject a Christian God? Because he has laws. And here's the funny thing. They're not bad laws. They're laws like don't lie. Like don't slander. Don't commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. Don't treat people as objects. Don't be the center of your universe. But you see, men don't come to the light because they love their evil deeds. And they love their evil deeds because of the condition of their own heart. And that's what this is the reason why the unbeliever will be taken unaware. He's living as though there is no God. He's living as though there is no law. He's living as though there will never be. An intervention that God shows up and reclaims what is his and renders to every man according to that which is due him. Do you see? Now, let's go on. When he comes to the Christian, and this is the part that I, I want to. Like I, I, I was, I just want to do a better job on than last time. Here's what here's what this is referring to. Why is the Christian not taken Unaware. Verse 5. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. Now do you see that? 
Now, what does that mean? We're not going to get into the intricacies because Paul doesn't get into intricacies of what it means. But we are going to point out some very important truths. The first thing I want to say before we get into this is this. He comes like a thief in the night for the unbeliever. But there's a real sense in which he comes like a thief in the night for the believer. So what's the advantage? Well, the advantage is the believer doesn't know when he's coming. But when he shows up, the believer understands. He's not confused. He's not bewildered. He's not terrified. Because he is standing there and witnessing the fulfillment of all his hopes. Now, how is a believer like this? How, because we know that the believer was once also darkness. So how can he be this way? Well, let's look at the idea here for just a second. Sons of light and sons of day. He's not just saying sons who walk in light. But he's talking about something much deeper. He's talking about nature. Who we now are in Christ. That we are new creatures with new affections. And we no longer love darkness. If you love darkness, then you really need to question your Christianity. Now, of course, all of us are susceptible to temptation. All of us must fight against the flesh and the world and the devil. And it's sometimes two step forward, one step back. Yes, I want you to know that. That's the same for all of us. But if you have a heart set on darkness, there's a problem. There's a real problem. Why? Because the believer is a son of light. He has new affections. He no longer loves darkness, but he loves the righteousness of God. Now, go back, hold your place and just go back to Ephesians 5 again and look at this beautiful thing that Paul says in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, for you were formerly darkness. He's talking to Christians. You were formerly darkness. But then he says, but now, not one day in heaven, now you are light in the Lord. You see, he's talking not just about you turned over a new leaf. Or you decided to join a church or you decided to clean up your morality. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? You became something different and it has to do with your nature. And that's the meaning of born again. Born again is not raising your hand at an evangelistic campaign. It's not even making a decision. That's called decisionism and it's not a very proper doctrine. Being born again is a radical work of God whereby the Holy Spirit actually does a miraculous work in the heart of a person, changing their affections and their affections guiding their will. All right. Now, but not only have we this new nature of light, but also we have the illumination of light. The revelation of God. He's done something to our minds. And I want you to hold your place. And this verse is real important. So follow me. And go to 2 Corinthians. And I want to show you one of the most beautiful and powerful statements. With regard to the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And look at verse 6. 
For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's not only changed our hearts, he's illuminated our minds. And there's something so powerful here. He is relating the Christian's conversion with the very creation of the world. Do you see that? In the creation of the world, he spoke. He said, light, there was light. The day that you were saved, the day that you were born again, he did the same thing. He spoke and there was light and there was a recreation. Have you ever wondered why Genesis begins with in the beginning and then John, the gospel of John, begins with in the beginning? Because it's through Christ in the gospel of John that the new creation happens. The starting over. Do you see that? And that new creation is not just something that one day will begin. It has begun. And you say, where? In you. That's what Paul means when he says, you're a new creature. You're a new creation. Yes, we're still in a fallen world. Yes, we must still struggle with the flesh. But something has happened to us. Do you see that? Or if you're a Christian, it's happened to you. Now... Go back to 1 Thessalonians again. We're going to go from there to this next verse, verse 6. He's already said now that we're sons of light and sons of day in verse 5. Now he gets to verse 6 and he says, so then, let us not sleep. Now I want you to concentrate on the so then. Okay? This is very important. Because... Even though there are more pillars than what I'm going to give you, I have time for only two. But I want to show you two important foundations to why we live like we do. Or why we're supposed to live as Christians. Why we're supposed to live differently. What's the foundation of this different life that we have? And I want to give you two that one of them is seen outside the text and one of them is seen directly in this text, but they both work together. And, And this is the first one. We live the Christian life because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's the first thing I want you to see. Why do we live the Christian life? What's our motivation? Because of what God did for us in Christ. Look in Romans, just really quick, chapter 12, and look at verse 1. Verse 1 begins with the preposition, therefore, the conjunction, therefore. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm asking you to give your life as a living sacrifice to God. To turn over your life to God totally, completely, forever. And their answer back is, well, what's the motivation for that? The mercies of God. Do it because of the mercies of God. And then the the reader possibly asks, what are the mercies of God? And Paul says the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Everything that God did for you in Christ. And because he did that for you in Christ. Now offer your life as a living sacrifice. You see that? The same thing is found. We don't have time to go there. But in Ephesians chapter 4. The first three chapters of Ephesians. The deepest theology possibly in the entire Bible. Of who of of what God has done for us in Christ. And who we are in Christ. So those three chapters. It's laid out before us. And then he gets to chapter 4. And what does he say? Therefore. Do what? Live. Walk. In a manner worthy. Of your calling. Of what's been done for you. You see that? 
And that's why, listen to me. That's why instead of learning principles and programs and all things about how to get your life right with Christ, here's what you need to do. The more you know about what God has done for you in Christ, the more motivated you are to live the Christian life. Do you see that? But now there's another foundation and we see it here clearly in our text. Look in 1 Thessalonians 5. If you look in verse 5, he says... You are all sons of light and sons of day. And then verse 6, he goes, so then, let us not sleep. What is he saying? One of the foundations is, you should live the Christian life because of what God has done for you in Christ. The other foundation is this, you should live for God because of who you now are in Christ. You really are A son of light. You really are a child of God. You really are different. So go out there and live like you are. That's powerful when you grab a hold of it. Live not as a contradiction. But live as the outflow of who the Bible tells you you are. A new creation. Now, let's go on. Verse 6, he says, so then... Let us not sleep as others do. What does this tell us? This tells us something that I want you to hold in attention. On one hand, I've told you we're new creatures. We're children of light. God's made us new. He's illuminated our mind and all of that is true. And yet at the same time, I don't want you to get the idea of perfectionism or that the Christian life is easy and that there's never any struggles because this verse proves that's not true. Because right after telling them that they are sons of light, he then goes on and admonishes them. What does that tell us? You and I, even though we're new creatures, we are constantly in need of teaching, of correction, of admonishing. We're in constant need of it. It's not just you're saved now, just go out there and do whatever seems right to you. No, you're saved now, submit yourself to the revelation of God. In the scriptures. That's the point being put across. Submit yourself to God. And not some dream or feeling. Or some new Christian fad. Submit yourself to the, Christ, to the Christian scriptures. And this is one of the things I want to admonish you young men about. If you want to be men. To be a man. A mature man. Is to know the scriptures. And to submit your life to them. We've got enough flighty people running around. We need mature men, mature women who know the scriptures and submit their life to it. Now, he says, because we're sons of light, let us not sleep. Now, what does it mean? What is he talking about? When I think of sleep, I think of someone who's insensitive to what's going on around them. So insensitive to spiritual realities. Someone who's inactive, right? They're asleep. Inactive with regard to the will of God. And someone who's apathetic. As long as he's asleep. He's not zealous. And especially spiritually. If they're asleep. They're not. Or they are. Apathetic with regard to the second coming of Christ. And all that that means. And what he's saying is. Don't be like that. Don't fall asleep. Don't get drowsy. Don't get distracted. Don't do it. Now, here's the important thing that I want you to see. First of all, when he says, then let us not sleep, that's in the present tense. 
And in the Greek, that denotes a continuous action. And what he's saying is, you and I must always be on guard. Always. We are always in danger of falling asleep. It's always a possibility. And then notice this. We have a first person plural in this text. Let us not sleep. Paul has now included himself. All right. What does that tell us? You're never going to be so mature that you don't have to be concerned about the danger of falling asleep, of becoming apathetic with regard to God, of becoming insensitive to spiritual realities, of becoming inactive with regard to the will of God. You must always be careful. As a matter of fact, youngster, let me tell you something. It is much easier to walk in zeal for Christ when you are younger. It's when you get older. And the years have mounted up behind you. You need more than just fleshly zeal. You need the scriptures. You need the spirit of the living God. And you need to watch yourself more closely when you're old than when you're young. Note this. That most of the great men of God in the Bible who fell did not fall when they were young fighting the Lord's victories. They fell after. When they were older and full of accolades. You see that? So there's always the need to stay on guard. Now, he says here, so then let us not sleep as others do. Who are the others? The unbelievers. What should we do? He says, but let us be alert and sober. This word but here is an adversative conjunction. And it's the strongest one there is in the text. And what he's saying is, look, I'm telling you, you need to be the total opposite of the unbelieving world that is asleep. With regard to God, God's will, and Christ's coming. You need to be completely different. Don't be like them at all. Not at all. Don't be like them. You see, don't you need prodding? You do. I do. We all do. Be careful. Don't fall asleep. Do the opposite. And what is the opposite? Be alert. Now notice again. Let us be alert. Paul, again, the mature, the elder, including himself, he needed to guard. He needed to be alert. What does it mean to be alert? To be watchful. To be watchful, to be waiting, to be awake. As someone in a guard tower, thinking that at any moment the enemy could attack. And we must be ready. Be alert. If you'll go back to Ephesians for just a second. In chapter 6, verse 18. It says, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the spirit. And that doesn't mean glossolalia. Doesn't mean tongues. It means praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. Same word. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Be on the alert with all perseverance. It's easy to stay alert for five minutes. Just ask one of my boys in a deer stand. It's easy to stay awake for five minutes. It's hard to stay awake for 12 hours. Perseverance. Always persevering. Watching. Being alert. Not trusting in our own, our own self. Our own strength. Our own wisdom. But being alert. Knowing that we live behind enemy lines. In Colossians. We have a similar thing. Look in Colossians chapter 4. In verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, here's what I want you to see. Devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert. Praying at all times in the spirit. Keep alert. 
there is a relationship that is set before us in these passages that alertness goes hand in hand with prayer. It does. Because prayer makes us sensitive. Prayer empowers. Prayer focuses us. We're not just to be watching, not just reading the scriptures and then trying to, you know, be careful as we walk through the day. You cannot be alert. You cannot be a watchman without a life of prayer. It's very important. And one of the most neglected things among those who love the word. He says, be alert. Now, what else does he say? He says, be sober. Be sober. Sobriety. The opposite of drunkenness. There's a spiritual drunkenness. I mean, I've seen drunks wander off in front of cars, fall off of the sidewalk into ditches, muddy themselves and not even know it. They're just oblivious to everything around them. There are Christians like that. There are, and they need to be told that they must be sober. Now, this idea of sober not only includes sobriety, but includes the idea of self-control and not just self-control, but of being rational. And in the context of Christianity, being rational is that our thinking is conformed to the scripture and not conformed to the loose and silly opinions of this age. Believers, I have seen so many believers do so many irrational things. I've done them myself. We're all in danger of being irrational and not following or thinking according to the scriptures. And when we do, we act in an irrational manner without any control whatsoever. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. And then we have that passage about in first Peter chapter five, verse eight, about what being alert, being sober and why? Because the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Whom he may devour. Now, I've heard preachers say this, especially in youth group meetings and things like that. Now, he's a roaring lion. That means that he's a roaring lion is a lion who really has Bark is worse than his bite and he really, he can't touch you. He can just roar at you. Do not believe that. He's destroyed enough Christian lives and he's destroyed enough ministries. He's destroyed so many things. He's devoured so many people. Do not believe that he's just someone who roars and cannot destroy. He can destroy. He cannot destroy the believer eternally. That is true. God keeps him. But there are. Do you realize what would happen if a minister of Christ gave way to certain sins? What happens to him? His ministry and his life is destroyed. And don't you think that you're beyond that? And so we must we must be vigilant. We must now bear with me because I want to get through this because I want to finish this chapter so that we've been in this book for like 43 years now. So. Um, so then he says this, he says in verse seven, for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, what is he saying in the natural world? There are certain activities that are appropriate or correspond to the night, even if they're not appropriate. For example, it's appropriate to sleep at night. I mean, even in college, you go in your roommates in bed at 12 o'clock at noon, you go, what's the problem? You don't say that at midnight. 
but 12 o'clock noon. Because it's appropriate to sleep at night. And even in the Roman Greco world, it was appropriate. You know, they had drinking parties and drinking competitions like most universities. And that was appropriate at night. But even in the Roman Greco world, for someone to be drunk in the daytime was considered debauchery. Even in that society. And most lewd behavior, most immorality, thievery, murder, and everything else doesn't occur in broad daylight. It occurs in the night. And Paul is using this, and now he's going to apply it spiritually. And what is he basically saying? Look, sleeping, being insensitive to spiritual realities, being inactive with regard to the will of God, being apathetic with regard to the second coming, being without any alertness whatsoever, and being without self-control, well, that's logical for the unbeliever. That's a even we could use the word, it corresponds to an unbeliever. It's appropriate for an unbeliever. They're unbelievers. That's what unbelievers do. But what he's saying is, it's not appropriate for the believer. It's a contradiction, not only of what the believer confesses with the mouth, it is a contradiction of what the believer actually is now. A son of light and a child of God. So to live that way... Is to be a contradiction, a walking opposition. It's to be contrary, ludicrous, irrational. Don't do it because you don't have to. You can say no to the deeds of darkness and the deeds of the flesh. Now, quickly, let's go on. We're about done. Verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Now, I want you to look at this. Look down at your text, okay? Look down at your text. But since we are. Then let us be. But since we are, let us be. Do you see the connection? Since we are children of God, sons of light, let us act a certain way. God's not asking you to do something that's contrary to your nature. He's saying, this is who you are now. Act like this. Do you see that? Now he goes on and he says this. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Again, the emphasis on sober is used it twice. What is being sober? Sobriety, the opposite of being spiritually drunken. It means self-control. It means acting and thinking rationally, which is according to the scriptures. All right. He says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I want you to look at something when he says, let us be sober. That's present tense. It should be a practice of our life. Sobriety, self-control should be a practice of our life. But then when he comes to. Having put on the breastplate of faith, that's not present tense, it's aorist. And although context is important in determining what that exactly means, the context is pretty clear. You put on your armor as a decisive event and you don't take it off again. He's saying, be sober always. Every day, get up and be sober. He's saying, every day, get up, don't put on your armor because you should have it on already. Don't ever take it off. Don't ever take your armor off. Now, 
Even in warfare today and warfare in the Roman world, a soldier almost never sleeps in his armor unless he's in the midst of the most ferocious battle or that battle could spring up on him that quick. Then he sleeps in his armor with his gun at his side or his sword at his side. And what that is describing to us, brothers and sisters, is that we sometimes are not seeing the reality of the Christian life. Sometimes I wish I could just pull back the veil and that we would all see what's even going on around us in the heavenlies. This is a dangerous place. And we need to have on the full armor of God continuously. Do not take it off. Do not slack up. Be on the alert. Now, I just want to say this. I don't, this passage is not about ecclesiology. But one of the reasons why I believe that Sundays and church ought to be for Christians. And we want all kinds of people who are not Christians here. But we really want to minister to Christians. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you're really walking with God. You've been out there seven days a week, 24-7, whatever you want to say. And you've been in the midst of a battle. And I want you to be able to come into a church where you are sheltered, protected, fed, strengthened. And then you can go back out there again and swing your sword. You need to be fed. You need to be fed. And not just fed. But one of the reasons why I practice church discipline and other things like that is also you must be protected. That you can kind of come in here and rest. Without fear of an enemy. Do you see that? Now, let's go on quickly. He says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, breastplate plate, and a helmet. The two things I want you to see about this, they're essential. You get a knife through the arm. I've never done that. Don't want to do it. I suppose it'd be very painful. But you can survive something like that. You get a, you get a sword through the head. You're a goner. You get a sword through the chest or through the back into the heart. It's over. So these, these things that he's telling us to do. He's not saying, hey, if you want to do this and you want to look really nice for the parade, then put this on. This is not a parade. It's a war. Put it on. Keep it on. Because it's absolutely essential. Okay, now what is this breastplate? He goes on and he says this. A breastplate of faith and love. A breastplate of faith. It is believing God. In what way? Believing what God has revealed in His Word. And I want to tell you something. If you don't know His Word, you can't have much faith. Because his, your faith is based on what He promised. And if you don't know what He promised, you can't have big faith. And even though this is used in Ephesians as, as more the idea of a shield of faith, the same idea is there. What does it mean? When the devil comes at you with his flaming missiles, his lies, because that's how he kills. He kills by lying, by denying God's truth and getting you to believe something else. And the way you protect yourself from that is when he comes to you and he says something like, God doesn't love you. You raise up the shield of faith, the word of God, the, the, the breastplate of righteousness. And you, you're able to stand because you know nothing will separate me from the love of God. You're lying. And every time he comes at you, you're able to counter with faith. But then faith is also related 
vibrantly, necessarily, directly with obedience. So many silly teachings on Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. What people say about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. When he's in battle with the devil. And they say this. They go, well when Jesus was in battle with the devil to defeat him. He quoted scripture at him. What? Is that what you really think happened? Like they're battling, you know, charms and curses and words one against the other. Well, that... Jesus didn't defeat the devil in Matthew 4 because he quoted scripture at the devil. He defeated the devil because he obeyed the scripture he quoted. Because he believed and obeyed the scripture he quoted. Do you understand me? It's not this mystical, I'm going to throw out the word of God and the devil's going to run. No, you cling to God and the way you do it is by holding on to the word that he's revealed in the scriptures. Do you see that? It's not by just casting out a spell, even if it's biblical. It's by believing and obeying what God has said. He obeyed. That's how he defeated the devil. Now... Let's go on. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Head's pretty important. I almost knocked myself out today. I was doing pull-ups in the basement. And I got real zealous. And I pulled my chin over that bar. And I didn't realize that tuba 12 was that low. I thought, oh my, the house has come down on my head. The head is a delicate thing, even if it's mine. You need a helmet on it. And in that head, there's a brain. And in that brain, you receive thoughts, ideas, philosophies. And if that brain is being bombarded with the lies and the philosophies of this age, there has to be something covering, protecting that mind thicker than your skull. And what must it be? A helmet. A helmet. And, and look what it says. It doesn't say a helmet of salvation, but a helmet, the hope of salvation. What does that mean? He's not saying that the believer is not saved. The believer is saved. But what he's talking about is that final, full salvation. He's talking about that, that truth that he who began a good work and you will finish it. That you will stand before Christ blameless and with great glory and with joy unspeakable. It will happen. And that will make you so strong. How? You know, you try to do something and you fail 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 and you fail. And with each one of those failures, it's like, I just might as well give up. Whether it's trying to lift weights or trying to lose weight or trying to do good in a class. After a while, you just go, I can't keep beating my head against the door. I just ought to give up. But if you know, if you know, in the end... He's going to make it happen by his power, his faithfulness. He is going to make it happen. Then if you fall seven times like a righteous man, you can get up again. Not because you got this I can do spirit, but because you're believing your God. He said, I began a good work in you. I will finish that work. So get up. It will happen. That is such a joy to a failure like me. 
That makes me so strong. It's the only reason. I can just get up again and go, okay, try again. Why? Because of this. That final and full salvation. Now, we'll get quickly through this last part. Verse 9. For God is not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what that, this hope of salvation is. If I had thoughts like some Christians, or I do believe that some sincere Christians can be this messed up in their doctrine, where they think that possibly they won't be saved in the end. If I had an idea that somehow my salvation depended upon me, and that there was still the possibility of me having to suffer the wrath of God, I would have no strength. I'd curl up in a ball. And if you don't do the same thing, it's only because you don't know who God is, or you don't know who you are. Because if it was point, if it was nine nine nine, if it was what could I say, point nine 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 percent God, and point zero 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 one you, wrath. Because even that small decimal you can't do, but He's done it, and that's our hope. He's done it. I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to press on to know the Lord. I am going to advance. And even if on my dying day, which will be the case, there will still be innumerable failures that would engulf me and send me to hell. If it weren't for Christ, I will be confident because Christ has saved me. Now, he says in verse 10. Who died for us so that whether... We are awake or asleep. We will live together with him. He died for us. Now, that, Paul is not only saying this in order to say this is the means by which we will be saved, but also this is the surety. This is the guarantee. Believer, he died for you. Elect child of God, he died for you. Do you think he's going to die for you and then fail to get you to the end that he has determined? Absolutely not. And then we go on and he says... Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Now, what is he doing here? He's going back to verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve. So as do the rest who have no hope. They were wondering what's going to happen to people who die, Christians who die prior to the coming of Christ. And now he's answering the question fully. Look. Whether you're awake or asleep, you're going to be with him. Now, that's what it's all about, Christian, being with him. I don't need to know when, how, or anything else about his second coming so much. As long as I know that when he comes, I'll be with him. I'll be with him. That's all that matters. I'll be with him. And that's what you want to cultivate. Cultivate with him. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another. Build up one another, just as you also are doing. They were doing this. He said, go on. If you were doing this even better than them, I would still have to tell you, go on and do it better. Keep going. But here's what I want you to see in verse 11. Look at it in light of. Chapter 4, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Now, here's what I want you to see. 
I want you to see this is so important. The Apostle Paul is not saying, now, having said that, I'm going to come to Thessalonica and I'm going to help you. That's not what he says. What we're seeing here is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and on. He's saying, saints, it's the minister's job to teach you so that you do the work of the ministry. And he's saying, I taught you this. Now, you take these words and you build one another up. It's the same here tonight. I've taught you this. The scriptures. Now, go take this and build one another up. Don't just get into vain conversations all the time. Don't just talk about the weather or basketball or whatever's on the calendar for this month. We are in great need of building each other up. We are in great need of encouragement. If there's one thing, well, there's several things, but one thing I would like to change if I could go back 30 years with my regard to my preaching is I would encourage people more. Encourage the saints to go on, to go on, to build each other up, to be strengthened. Well, I want to thank you for being patient with this sermon. But if there's someone here and you're troubled about your soul, I'd be more than happy to speak with you, more than happy to speak with you. And don't. If, if there's, if God, if God in Christ, if through the Holy Spirit, he's calling you, be sensitive to that. Don't, don't put it off. Don't delay. It's not wise. It's very dangerous. All right. Let's pray.